Our second lesson uh, comes from the Gospel according to John. We are in the 14th chapter, and I want to begin reading today, actually, a couple of verses that I closed with last week, and so I will be reading from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. And again, I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. Jesus is speaking and he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. And then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teachings. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Our study through the Gospel of John finds us amid the farewell discourse of Jesus to his disciples. We can only imagine the solemnity of the mood that permeated that upper room on that night, from the humbling of the disciples by Jesus washing their feet, to the revelation that a traitor was in their ranks, to the imminent failure of Peter, to the news of Jesus' coming departure, one must wonder whether Jesus' admonition at the beginning of this chapter 
let not your hearts be troubled, gained any purchase in their minds. But we must remember that Jesus' admonition was unlike the trite and hollow-sounding things that you overhear in a funeral home in the wake of an ordinary death. Jesus has commanded their attention since the very first moment they heard him speak because Jesus possessed an uncommon authority. He has demonstrated an extraordinary compassion to those who have been emotionally distraught, physically incapacitated, spiritually diseased, and mentally overwhelmed. They have seen him engage his adversaries with such rhetorical superiority that they know that no one can lay a glove on him. And so on the heels of Jesus' admonition, let not your hearts be troubled, he then immediately begins to offer them reasons as to why. He was leaving them, yes, but it was so that he might go to prepare a place for them so that they might be where he is. He declares that he is the way and the truth and the life, that it is by him that they will come to the Father. And then he declares that because he is returning to the Father, they will be engaged in a ministry that will exceed their expectations, a ministry in which their requests made in his name will bring about results. Now, we explained last week that these amazing ministry results were not about supernatural miracles, for a steady diet of that kind of ministry would have caused sinful men to look upon the apostles as the source of these miracles and cause them to look away from Jesus. Jesus was referring to the miraculous harvest that was coming in the aftermath of Pentecost. As the disciples engaged the world with the good news of what God had done in Christ. And so when Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. We need to understand that in light of what follows. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now it is worth pointing out here, I think, that Jesus has spoken on more than one occasion about his love for the disciples as well as the Father's love for them. But this is the first time that Jesus has spoken of the disciples' love for him. Now, he's not assuming that love is there, because it's not, at least not in the measure that it will be and it will need to be. But notice the conditional phrasing here. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, this is a most understandable relational dynamic, is it not? If you truly love your spouse, you will behave in ways that are pleasing to them. If you truly love your work, you will conduct yourself in a way that honors your profession. If you love a particular sport, you will play in a way that obeys the rules, does not violate the spirit of the game. And Jesus is saying that if we truly love him, if we are in a right relationship with him, 
then we will embrace the totality of what he has taught and said and commanded. In the same way that his love for the Father resulted in his total obedience to what the Father commanded him to do, so our love for the Son will cause us to live obediently to all that he has said. When this right relationship with the Son exists, It results in the Son asking the Father to send the Spirit to the disciples as a constant and abiding presence. And it is this Holy Spirit presence that is the source of power for ministry that results in the greater works that Jesus speaks of in verse 12. Now stop to think about this. It is the Spirit that prepares the soil of men's hearts to receive the Word of Christ. The Spirit inspires the hearts of disciples to share the gospel. The Spirit provides the words that they will say. The Spirit brings dead souls to life so they may hear the gospel and respond in faith to Christ, faith with which the Spirit endows them. The Spirit applies the atoning work of Christ to the hearts of men and assures them of the truth of the gospel. The Spirit takes up residence in the hearts of believers and engages in a sanctifying work in every believer, mortifying their sinful passions and engendering their affections for Christ and the things of Christ. It is the Spirit that effectually preserves believers throughout their lives and brings them safely to the end of their lives. So these greater works that the disciples will do will be by the agency of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus will entreat the Father to send. But this wonderful promise is not all that Jesus promises to do. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you'll see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now commentators are divided as to what exactly Jesus means here. Is he speaking of his resurrection, or the coming of the Holy Spirit, or is he speaking of his end of the age, Perusia, when his kingdom will be fully consummated? And while you can make a good case for any of them, or argue that there are shades of all three of these present here, it is most likely, I think, that Jesus has his post-resurrection appearances in mind. While the disciples cannot possibly perceive of what he is saying because they are not fully convinced that his departure from them is by way of the cross, they will soon realize that he was telling them of his resurrection before it happened. He specifically indicates that he will come to them and they will see him, but the world will see him no more. Because Jesus has finished making any public appearances as we noted at the beginning of chapter 13. He will only make himself known now to those who have loved him and followed him. And these resurrection encounters will assure Christ's disciples that they too will one day experience resurrection. Because I live, you also will live. 
Paul says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. But it isn't this assurance only that will attend to them at that point in time. They will also come to understand the reality that Jesus is in the Father and that they are in Christ and that Christ is in them. In the next chapter, which we will get to in a couple of weeks, we have Christ's final I am statement that speaks of this mysterious reality that exists for all disciples of Christ. And the image that Jesus uses is that of a vine and its branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You are probably very familiar with that. And while we won't go into depth here, that image will help them to understand what Jesus is declaring here. Paul will later say that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. But as we read from Romans 8 a moment ago, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are, what? In Christ Jesus. And then a couple of verses later he says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And this entire concept of our being in Christ and Christ in us deserves, I think, long contemplation on our part as disciples for the implications of this are truly transformative. For those who believe that John wrote his gospel late in the first century, it means that he wrote it after the Romans had destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And in many respects, that was inevitable. Because when Christ declared from the cross, it is finished, and then breathed his last and gave up his spirit, we are told that the veil at the entrance of the Holy of Holies in the temple was mysteriously and supernaturally torn from top to bottom. For it was no longer necessary to protect the priests from the holy presence of God because God, like Elvis, had left the building. His glory had departed. Ichabod. But at Pentecost, God graciously took up new dwelling place in the heart of every redeemed believer. The Spirit of God fell upon and took up residence in every disciple of Christ. And this presence, Paul describes as God's guarantee or God's down payment, God's earnest money, assuring us that we belong to Him and that all the promises of Christ to us will come to fruition. So then later... When John is called upon to record the revelation of Christ to him, notice what is revealed in the full consummation of the kingdom when John sees the vision of the new Jerusalem coming down. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be as people and God himself will be with them as their God. So when Jesus says here in the gospel, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He is not speaking metaphorically, but rather he is speaking experientially, indicating that this divine presence with believers is a very real event that is a foreshadowing of something even more grand and more experiential that awaits all those who belong to Christ. 
Now, I don't know if you believe that the Spirit of God dwells in you specifically. But if you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, then the Spirit of God resides in you, and the Spirit is there engaged in a work in you. Philippians 2 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When Jesus says to the disciples, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, that was most immediately fulfilled on Easter. But the fulfillment of that promise became real every day to them as the Holy Spirit's presence sustained them and encouraged them and advocated for them and interceded for them and equipped them and guided them and ministered to them and on and on. And this same Holy Spirit lives in you if you are in Christ. Again, what did we read from Romans 8? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. I don't know if you caught all of that, but Paul calls the Spirit the Spirit of God. In that passage, he calls Him the Spirit of Christ. He calls Him simply the Spirit. And he says that the Spirit of God dwells in you as well as Christ is in you as well as the Spirit who dwells in you, and you are in Christ. And all of this is to say that the disciples of Christ are wise to discover the great advantage of having the Spirit of God as an indwelling presence whom Jesus describes as the paracletos. This is one who is called in to provide help or assistance, typically in a judicial setting, but in other contexts as well, as one who comes alongside. And so for the believer, it is imperative that we come to rely upon the Spirit of God who is engaged in a work in us, that we not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, or that we not quench the Spirit, as he writes to the Thessalonians, but rather that we fan into flame the gift of God, as he writes to Timothy. And these admonitions from Paul to the saints is to acknowledge that our sanctification or our being made holy is a cooperative work between the Spirit and us. The Spirit is doing the heavy lifting to be sure, but we have a role to play as willing participants. Which brings us back to what Jesus says at the beginning of this section, if you love me you will keep my commandments. The measure of our love for Him is displayed by our full embrace of all that He has said and done for us. And as our love for Christ grows, our obedience grows, 
And the blessed benefit that we receive is a growing manifestation of Christ. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now again, Jesus may immediately have his post-resurrection appearances in mind, but we know from the story of the man born blind that the manifestation of Christ is not about physical sight, but rather spiritual sight. And the more we surrender to the influence of the Spirit of God dwelling in us, the clearer our vision becomes of Jesus as the way and the truth and the life. Well, as Jesus senses the time growing short, he declares to his disciples that he is imparting peace to them. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What a tremendous gift this is. In times of trouble, when the seas are tossed and the storms are raging and the world is coming apart at the seams, believers have an abiding peace that understands that there is one who sits on the throne governing all that is taking place. This is not the world's version of peace that requires circumstances to return to a state of tranquility first. This is the peace of Christ who knows that. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His will. And in that sense, this is an uncommon peace, an overcoming peace, a peace that passes all understanding. It's a peace that we receive as a fruit of the indwelling Spirit of God. And it is more than a stable emotional state, but rather it is a fullness of being that produces a mind that is fixed upon the Lord. Imagine those ancient mariners who navigated the northern seas by the stars. They knew that the North Star could always be relied upon to remain stationary in the sky, marking the spot over the North Pole. So whether the seas were raging, it mattered not to the North Star. It never changed. It did not budge. And for the Christian, Christ offers a peace that is built upon the foundation of his supremacy over all things. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is immovable. In him there is no shadow of turning. And when our mind is stayed upon him, it begins to experience a tranquility that is uncharacteristic of those whose mind is fixed upon the world. All that Jesus has shared with them from the moment that Judas Iscariot left the room has been to edify them and assure them that what is about to take place is coming as no surprise to him. As he says here, I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. So all of this is Jesus chasing their doubts away. He doesn't want them to have any remaining questions. He wants them to be filled with a great confidence because what is about to happen will shake the best of them. But in the aftermath, in the days to come, 
those intimidated disciples will emerge on Pentecost as transformed men, filled with the Holy Spirit, prepared to die for Christ as they announce to all the world that God has made peace with us through the atoning work of His only begotten Son. And this same transformation, it is available today to all who will come to Christ in faith because this is the point of the Gospel. It is the free offer of redemption to mankind. It is the declaration of God's terms for peace. He does not establish peace by means of a sword, but He offers peace through a sacrificial cross. And to all who respond in faith, He promises that He will come to them, will take up residence within them, that they might know the truth of what He declares by His Son. So friend, if you have not yet availed yourself of God's invitation, then let me encourage you to come to Him even now. Repent and believe on the name of Christ. Would you bow your heads and pray with me for a moment today?